And thank you. Oh, we lost the crowd. I must have offended somebody. <laughs> They're all gone. <laughs> oh, not all. All right, let's turn back to the book of Leviticus in chapter 16. One of the most important days in Israel's life as a nation. Remember that Israel did not uh, structure their calendar like we do. And I don't mean by that uh, just the fact that it's a lunar calendar. That is, it was 30 days a month, not 365 days a year. But regardless of that, their calendar was different because it was all centered around things that had to do with their experience of God and their religious festivals or feast. And so one of the most important of those is the day known in Hebrew as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. So what I'd like to do uh, this morning in our remaining session is to uh, go back to the book of Leviticus and read about that Day of Atonement, chapter 16, and then illustrate what some of the things were that went on on the Day of Atonement. Now, I'm going to not do everything that's found there because of this reason. There were things in Leviticus 16 that Aaron, the high priest, and the following priest after him would have had to do that the Lord Jesus Christ did not have to do. The priest had to make sacrifices for himself and, you know, cleanse himself and all those kind of things. So we're not going to really go over all of those because... Uh, when we think of this as it relates to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a point made in Hebrews that, of course, he did not have to provide sacrifice because he had no sin. So I'll, I'll read it, though, in Leviticus chapter 16, if you'd like to follow along. The Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place, with a young bullock for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle. And with a linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. So that's, that's the part that uh, Aaron and the other subsequent priests would have had to do that, of course, doesn't pertain to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. So this is where we get the term that we still use in our English language, scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself 
and is for his house, and he shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil. He shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. Now, does anybody here have perfume allergies? No, you don't? Okay, good. I'm not wearing any, so it doesn't know. Uh, the reason is that this uh, incense that we use here is very pungent, very fragrant. And my wife always says, yeah, put too much on it. You know, it's really because it can really get pretty strong. And if anybody had perfume allergies, I didn't want to put any on at all. Now, I'm not going to put on as much as I usually do. But part of what we read there in Leviticus 16 had to do with that incense the thing that is on Aaron's hand there, our high priest, that little gold thing, looks like a big Christmas ornament, is what we use to uh, to illustrate the censer. So there would have been incense here, a cloud of incense, and then incense in that censer with the fire from off the altar as Aaron went in to the Holy of Holies inside the veil uh, there to perform his functions. So I'm not going to make a cloud per se but we'll give a little demonstration it's actually pretty interesting smell to it but as I say it is very very pungent no smoke alarms here good yeah or fire sprinklers you know to put it out So that's one of the things that Aaron would have done. He would have gone in, as the scripture says. There would have been a cloud of incense there. And then he'd have had incense in the censer on his hand as he went in before the Lord. Now, the purpose of that, a lot of people think it was, in a sense, to obscure his own presence as he went in before God. Whether that's the case or not, this was the instruction of scripture. So remember that this section here of the Holy of Holies was only 15 feet uh, by you know, 15 feet high and 15 feet wide. So it wasn't a real big place. I tell you myself, I try to go back in my mind and think what it must have been. You know, he only, and and here's the great, like I said, a lot of the lessons we learn from the tabernacle are contrast as well as direct teaching. So the beauty of this was that Aaron, one day a year, he went in before the God Our God who was seated on that throne, the cloud, as the Lord was seated there. That had to have been an awesome, awe-inspiring experience. The great contrast is Aaron only went in there one day a year. It's all he could go in. Aaron only went in one day a year. The best this whole system could do, as I've mentioned already, is to get one man in one day a year. Nobody else could go in. Where Aaron only went in one day, the Lord Jesus only had to go in one time in that sense, you see. And it completed the work that he did. So let's read on just a little bit. And uh, he took the incense and brought it within the veil. He shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. So he had so much incense there that it made a cloud that actually covered over the, the mercy seat. So that whole thing would have been filled, you know, with incense. And you got to remember, too, it wasn't open like this. Um, it would have had the veil here and all these heavy curtain coverings covering over it. So this was a closed room sealed off in that sense. 
and the incense would have permeated and filled that part of the room. Can you smell it? Yeah, strong, isn't it? (laughs) He shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. So remember that when he came into the Holy of Holies, he was to take the blood and sprinkle it. Blood always for sprinkling, as I mentioned yesterday. And he sprinkled uh, there before the mercy seat seven times. And then he was to kill the goat for the sin offering that is for the people. And bring his blood within the veil and do that with the blood as he did with the blood of the bullock. Sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So this was when he went in with blood and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat there on the ark. It's a lot of details. You know, the high priests, all the priests, I mean, it was a lot of details. Everything had to be done in a very specific way. And, you you know, you couldn't. Do it uh, just how willy-nilly, however you thought. God was very detailed about how he wanted this performed and how he wanted it done. And so the priests had to teach the other priest how to do uh, whatever it was they were to accomplish. And he was to make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and so on. Verse 17, there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goes in to make an atonement. Until he come out and have made an atonement for himself, his household, and all the congregation. So um, nobody was in there when he went in. Now, one of the things, if you read Leviticus 16, and it becomes very important to the whole picture and the reality of what it was, there was a going in, there was a coming out. Going in and a coming out. And then he was to go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. So the golden incense altar had to have an atonement made for it, a covering, and blood applied on the golden incense altar. And he made atonement for the incense altar that is there before the Lord. So again, when you think back to that thing I raised in Hebrews uh, 9 about which had the golden censer, you're going to read even in Leviticus 16 that that incense altar, even though it was outside the veil, is said to be before the Lord is functionally connected with the God who was seated behind that veil. And then once he did that, he was to take the blood of the, of the goat, put it on the horns of the altar round about, sprinkle the blood seven times. And when he made an end in verse 20 of reconciling the holy place, the tabernacle, the altar, he was to bring the live goat, and he would lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness, and the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he was to let the goat go in the wilderness. And then Aaron came into the tabernacle of congregation, put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went in, leave them there, wash himself, and wash his clothes, perform these other things that are listed, and then uh, put on the linen clothes and the holy garments and put back on his garments of glory and beauty. So that's just a basic outline of what was to be done by 
Aaron and the later high priest on that day of atonement. It is um, what made possible on on a national level the forgiveness or the covering of Israel's sin for a year. Atonement basically means a covering in a sense. But their sin was covered. So every year this had to be performed. And remember, this was a national thing. It had to do with that. Leviticus uh, chapter 23 reminds us of that, that it would cover once a year. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 7 as well. The purpose or what resulted was as in chapter 16 here in verse 30, to cleanse you that you might be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So with Israel... If you as an individual sinned and committed certain sins, there was prescribed sacrifice. Rex is bringing those out, I think, on Wednesday night, some of those Levitical sacrifices, that you as an individual, you did something wrong or whatever the violation was, God says you're to bring whatever the kind of animal was for that particular kind of sin and sacrifice. But as a nation, you see, this was in a sense what covered the nation for a year. It's a huge difference, and I, I repeat it because important to see that with what with us as individual was to Israel national. And then you got to go a little bit deeper sometimes to remember that what was true of them nationally was not necessarily true of every individual Israelite. Just because they experienced the Day of Atonement, it didn't mean that every Israelite individually was what we would call saved, okay? That's a different thing. But nationally, this provided that forgiveness for the whole of the nation. The scripture was very clear. He couldn't go in at any time. He could only go in this once a year. And then uh, one of the things you notice now... If you were listening from the first night, which I know everybody wasn't here and maybe you don't remember, when I talked about what I call the rope trick, you know, tying the rope to the leg in case he went in there and died, how would you know because you wouldn't hear the bells and all that? Well, we remember that on the Day of Atonement, Aaron took off the garments of glory and beauty and he had on the white linen garments so that he actually looked like uh, one of the average I call them average, but the, you know, the regular Levitical priest, not in garments of glory and beauty. Now, I know you can't remember everything, but just think of this one thing, that on that day, one of the things Aaron did was he had to kill a bullock. A bullock is a bull. I mean, I don't know if, if you've ever butchered an animal before, but I guarantee you one thing. By the end of that day, these garments would have been stained and covered with blood. So that as Aaron performed his duties in these linen garments, taking off the garments of glory and beauty and moved into the holy place and into the holy of holies, he had blood-stained garments, you see, that's an important picture, isn't it? And it makes my mind think even of visions of the Lord Jesus and the garments that are, you know, dyed in, in blood 
and so on. But anyway, that's another thing. But I think that's important to remember. So there's a lot of things about this tabernacle because it's a model that we don't have fully represented like it probably actually looked like. By the time this altar had been sprinkled with blood, all those times that it was year after year, there's no telling what it would have looked like. And those garments there, think of the picture now of that one who's the priest performing his duties and his garments stained in the blood of the sacrifice. Blood, of course, speaks of the life being poured out. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, I've taken off the garments of glory and beauty, and um, you're going to have to use a little bit of imagination with me because I don't happen to have two goats here. I only have a goat and a sheep. But the Dalai Lama here is going to uh, help us to illustrate some things that went on that day. So there were two goats. I have removed from the breastplate pocket of the garments of glory and beauty, the Urim and the Thummim that were in the pocket of the breastplate that the high priest had on. Now, again, I don't know how these things indicated the will of the Lord, whether they were like, you know, dice and, you know, if this one went there or that way, or if one of them glowed. I already told you, some people think somehow, I don't know, it sounds a little fantastic to me, that all of those stones that were on the breastplate, that somehow those would start writing out letters, you know, standing out on like It's a little bit far-fetched. But somehow or another, they cast lots, and there, it was a way of indicating the Lord's will as to which one of these would be slain and which one of them would be the scapegoat. And so one of them was chosen by the casting of lots. And the one that was chosen is the one that the priest killed and took its blood, caught it in a pail or a pitcher somehow, something like that, and used for the performance of the things there, uh, as I mentioned and read throughout the Scripture. And so that was the, we'll play this as goat, Goat number one that was slain and his blood caught. So, goat number one, dead, blood shed, blood applied. So now we're going to move him back here. And you can't see him. No, you can't. You just think you can. But you really can't. You hide right there. Just imagine he's not there. Use your imagination. And then, after he performed those things, Aaron had goat number two, which was the scapegoat. Called the scapegoat because he would lay his hands on the head of the goat and confess the sins of the nation of Israel. Now, in my mind, I don't think he sat there and said, okay, you know, uh, Brother Zebulon over there, he stole somebody's cow, and Sister Naomi, she uh, was coveting uh, the dress that uh, Sister uh, Ruth had, and, you know, I don't think he'd have been there for the next Day of Atonement, you know, with that many people. But he confessed the sins of Israel, generally that they were sinners, and uh, probably in a very general way confessed a lot of things that would have summarized the sins of the nation of Israel. By laying his hands on that animal, it was very symbolic. He was symbolically transferring 
the sins of the nation to that animal. The animal, was, it's very unique. I can't think, well, there is one other, there is one other ritual that I can think of where one of the animals did not die, and that was the uh, cleansing that was provided when the leper was cleansed. There were two birds. One was killed. One was let loose. It's a very similar picture, though. I don't know if you remember that, but when the leper, if a leper ever was cleansed, he came to the priest. The priest examined him, declared him to be clean, and they performed a ritual. They killed one of the birds over running or living water, as it's called, and he caught the blood of that one pigeon or dove. And then they took their little paintbrush, I called it, which was cedar wood and scarlet and hyssop, like a bush, so it's like a paintbrush, and they sprinkled that blood upon the living bird. And the priest then took that living bird and he threw that bird up into the air. And there was the leper, you see. How did he know it was real? How did he know he was clean? Because he saw that bird rising up into the sky with the blood on it, you see. And he knew that his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus Christ, according to Romans 4, was delivered on account of our sins, but he was raised again for our justification. And the fact that he rose through the skies and ascended you know, it must have been a wonderful thing for that leper to see that bird and think, it's real. I know I'm clean because I see that bird rising into the sky. The bird with the blood on it. The efficacy of the dead bird blood. It was all a picture. In a very similar way, this is only the second sacrifice that I can think of that actually was not killed. The sins were transferred symbolically to the head of this goat. And then the goat was taken by the hands of a strong man, like me, and uh, carried off into the wilderness. And as it went out into the wilderness to never be seen again, come on, Mr. Goat, cooperate. This goat's going to back into the wilderness here, you see. Get in there, Mr. Goat. Stubborn goats. Come on, I want you to back in there. <laughs> you get the picture, all right? <laughs> the goat's gone. You can't see him. Uh, <laughs> he's peeking around the corner. So uh, the nation of Israel was watching. And as they saw that goat, symbolically with their sins being placed upon it, being carried away, let go into the wilderness... To never be seen again. They knew that that atonement had occurred. Now, of course, for them, it was had to be repeated year after year after year. We've already made that point. But um, it still was a very, very unique thing. So when we think of some of the applications of this, we remember that one of the important things is this. That... There was one goat for the Lord. The first goat was not for the people in that sense. It was to satisfy the Lord's demands. God had to be satisfied first. 
And then the sins of the people dealt with in that sense. And that's very important, isn't it? What is salvation? Many ways to think about it. But one of the things about salvation is this, that to be saved means I'm satisfied with what God is satisfied with. God is satisfied with the work of his son. And conversely, to not accept God's salvation is to say, I'm not satisfied, or to try to work your way to heaven, or do religious things. It's like, I'm not satisfied with what God is satisfied with. God had to be satisfied first. The first goat was for the Lord. And the death of the first goat provided the blood that enabled the atonement to occur, and and in a sense enabled that goat to be able to take those sins symbolically and be carried off into the wilderness. The blood sacrifice was necessary, verse 30. On that day the priest shall make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be cleaned from all your sins uh, before the Lord. The other thing we find is that once that was done, the high priest would go in, cleanse himself, wash himself, his clothes, and he'd put back on linen garments, and then he'd put back on the garments of glory and beauty. So there was this movement back and forth. Now I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm going to say this if I haven't said it already. I kind of think I probably did say it already, but I really don't remember. Um, that you really will not have the understanding that you should have of the book of Hebrews if you don't understand the tabernacle. Because it's just shot through with tabernacle language and tabernacle imagery. So listen to this now in um, verse 22. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness. It was therefore necessary that the patterns, these were the patterns of things in the heavens, should be purified with these, but the heavenly things with better sacrifices. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others, for then he must often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the age hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin or without reference to sin unto salvation. So let me suggest something to you on these three passages, particularly verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. Three words that help me to think of the flow and the movement of this passage. Verse 24, present Verse 26, past. Verse 28, future. So that what you read in verse 24, Christ is now appearing in the presence of God for us. Now, we don't have the garments of glory and beauty, but remember on that breastplate were the names of the 12 tribes, which represented all the people of Israel, really. 
And on the shoulders were the six names. So when the high priest went in, he was representing God to God, the people. If you translate that into the key of the New Testament, transpose that, when Christ appears in the presence of God, he bears your name there in the presence of God. You and I who are believers have a great high priest who knows our name. And he bears that name before the Father there in heaven. Wonderful thing to think about, isn't it? And so that's the present work. He appeared uh, there. He now appears. The order, if you look at the order, the first thing that happens is verse 26. He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He now appears for us. In the presence of God. And to those that look for him shall he appear the second time without reference to sin, but unto salvation. Now that language sounds a little bit strange at first, unless you think of it in tabernacle language. You see, one of the other contrasts was this. While the rope trick thing, I think I've already kind of dispelled a little bit of that. um, What happened though was that the high priest, he went in. before the presence of God to the holy place. He performed, I'm not going to put him in there because it's a little tight space, but he went in to perform the things that we read about into the very presence of God. And he did it in his plain linen garments. When he came back out, he took these off, he bathed, purified, went through the rituals, put back on these garments or similar and then put back on the garments of glory and beauty. So they did this every year, you see. And he went in and he came out. And so they were looking, weren't they? They might not have had a rope around his leg, but they were looking for him to come out. Because if he didn't come out, if God killed him, if God didn't accept the sacrifice, well, they were in deep trouble, weren't they? Because this was the national atonement of Israel. And if that sacrifice had not been accepted... Well, they, they wouldn't have found forgiveness or at least the covering for their sin. So every Israelite on that solemn day of atonement, you see, was waiting for that high priest to come back out of there and once again to put on his garments of glory and beauty. And then it was a collective whew, sigh of relief, you see, in a sense, right? Because their sins had been forgiven. But again, we find contrast. Now think about this again of the picture. When the high priest performed these sacrificial duties on that day of atonement, he didn't do it in garments of glory and beauty. He did it in the plain clothing of an everyday priest. When the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, as I already mentioned prior to this, he humbled himself, took upon him the form of a servant made in the likeness of men, Of a man, you see. You didn't look at the Lord Jesus Christ as he was on this planet. See some shining halo about him or see something that made him, you know, aura about him or something. He looked like anybody else, basically. He, He didn't come in the glorious beauty of himself. It was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He kind of pulled the veil back a little bit and let him see that glory of prefiguring there. But the difference in what the Lord Jesus Christ did from what was 
done on that day of atonement of Yom Kippur is that while the priests went in and came back out, what Hebrews says is our great high priest has gone into the presence of God. He hasn't come back out. He's still there. One day he'll come back in power and glory, you see. But it won't be in regard to salvation without uh, reference to salvation, you see, not unto salvation. That's the last verse there of the future. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, it won't be for salvation in that sense, but he will come back one day in power and great glory, and then we'll see who he really is on that day. So that's one of the unique things that is a, is a contrast here in the book of Hebrews. Just a couple of other things as we begin to think about it. Um, we remember that the blood was was applied on the mercy seat. Now, we already know what the contents of the ark were. Remember that these cherubim are shadowing over the mercy seat. And as they shadow over the mercy seat, they're looking down on the ark. And then they see in that ark the law. The law that says we've sinned. But when the blood was applied, propitiation was made. And now they're looking down not so much just to see the law, but they see the blood. There's a great verse in the book of Colossians. It's around chapter 1 and verse 20. It says something like this, that we who are believers in Christ are holy and without blemish and uh, without reproach. And here's the, here's the best part of that verse to me in his sight because God sees us now not in in view of a broken law if you're a believer in Christ you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and he looks down upon you you see it says he sees us that way without blame without any charge in his sight now I'll promise you this you won't have to stay around me very long to find some fault with me. It won't take long at all before you maybe even see me sin. Not that I want to, but it's just a reality, isn't it? And you may think I'm the biggest whatever that you've ever seen, you see. But the beauty is, it's not that God glosses it over and says, well, I just don't want to look and see what he did. I just can't look. You know, what did he do? You know, oh, not that. Oh, no, you know, no, 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 no. God looks at me, he sees me in his son. And he sees me as holy and without blame. And no charge can be leveled against me. In his sight, there's a very real point to be made. Yes, we ought to guard our testimony. Yes, it's important what you see me do and what you see me not do. But listen, when it comes down to the bottom line, that ain't what really matters. What matters is how God sees me. And through Christ... I can stand there in the very presence of a holy God and he sees me as unreprovable without blame in his sight. I stand there because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then um, just one other thing that, that I want to mention right now, and that is that there's a verse, oh, if I can find it, it's in First John, I think it's chapter 3. We're very close to that when we're here in the book of Hebrews. First John in chapter 3. 
And it says in verse 5, concerning the Lord Jesus, you know that he was manifested to take away sins. And in him is no sin. And that word take away, uh, does anybody have a different translation that doesn't say take away? It says something different, chapter 3, verse 5. What do you have, Luca? No, First John. First John, not John's Gospel. This way. Way, 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 way to the back. Just before Revelation. Honest mistake. Done it many times myself. First John. That's Third John. Keep going. Three. Three, five. Three, five. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Ah, yes. Very good, yeah. So yours is the same. Okay, well, at least we have consistency. That's good. Anyway, the idea is to bear away. And it reminds us of what took place here in a picture form, you see, as the sins were borne away on the goat symbolically. The Lord Jesus was manifested to bear away or to lift away or to take away our sins. Of course, that was all symbolic, but he did it by satisfying the righteous requirements of God. And then one other thing that was certainly different on that day, wasn't it? That you remember that when this high priest went in, people sometimes say, well, how did he get in and out? You know, and I said, I guess, you know, he either ducked under or he pulled the curtain to the side. I don't know, you know, but it seems like to me that's probably what it was. But he went in and he came out. But one of the huge differences, and it's found there in, in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and it's found in the Gospels as well, as that when the Lord Jesus died on the cross of Calvary and, and gave up his spirit and uh, cried, it is finished, that the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, signifying that the way into the holiest was now made open and that you could go directly into the presence of God. I don't know what those priests did in the days of the Lord Jesus because functionally, if you walked into that temple that was on the earth and that veil was open, (laughs) your job's done. (laughs) Because if anybody can go in there, you see, well, I don't need... A human priest, do I? I need a priest, but I have one, and he's in heaven. The high priest, the Lord Jesus. And so, and remember, it's so significant. I I think it's very significant that the curtain, the veil was torn from the top to the bottom. It wasn't from the bottom to the top, man trying to open his way up to God. It was God tearing the thing open from the top and saying, the way into the holiest is now made open. And you find forgiveness, and you, as a believer priest, you can go directly into God's presence. And I'm very glad that Malcolm, when he prayed, made a point to say, when it comes to the ministry and service of God and things that are done for the Lord, it isn't just something done in the local church. We individually can come before the Lord at any time. We individually can worship the Lord on, you know, on our own. Now we are to do it collectively, but we don't have to just do it collectively. We shouldn't just do it collectively. There ought to be times when we come before the very presence of God and remind ourselves that what we're doing here on planet Earth, really we're doing here, but there, you see. 
And what a privilege we have through the death of Christ. Human systems of religion will put blocks and uh, difficulties and impediments between distance between religion puts distance between God and man. Whether it's a human priesthood or special kind of buildings or whatever, you see. But true salvation, true gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ eliminates the distance between God and human beings and brings us right directly in to the presence of God. And so this is, again, the basic outline of what would have taken place on that day of atonement. And again, the downside, every year they had to do it again and again and again until finally Jesus Christ came, and that was done. So with that, my part of the presentation is done. I'll be up here a little while to uh, allow you to take pictures and to try and answer any questions that you may have or, or any thoughts you'd like to share. I would like to just read one of my favorite hymns that brings some of these things to mind. Some of these hymns, these guys just nailed it, you know. And so we sang one earlier by Horatius Bonar, um, but this one is also by Horatius Bonar. It's in the Black Book number 52. I'm not going to sing it, but I just want you to think about the words of this hymn. Done is the work that saves. Done is the work that saves. Once and forever done. Finished the righteousness that clothes the unrighteous one. The love that blesses us below is flowing freely to us now. And then you think as he was writing this, he had to have this tabernacle stuff in mind, didn't he? The sacrifice is over. The veil is rent in twain. The mercy seat is red with blood of victim slain. Why stand we then without in fear? The blood of Christ invites us near. I mean, he had to have this in mind, didn't he? Um, The gate is open wide. The new and living way is clear and free and bright with love and peace and day. Into the holiest we come, our present and our endless home. Enthroned in majesty, the high priest sits within. His precious blood once shed has made us, made and keeps us clean. With boldness let us now draw near. That blood has banished every fear. Then to the Lamb once slain be glory, praise, and power. Who died and lives again. Who liveth evermore. Who loved us, cleansed us by his blood, and made us kings and priests to God. Now, there's a lot of good hymns, and there's a lot of good music. uh, But I'm going to tell you, that one is doctrinally straight up. (laughs) He just nailed it, I think. And in the imagery of what we've been thinking about, I think it's a very fitting hymn to think about and meditate on. Take Take a screenshot of it, put it on your phone, in your own private time, meditate on those thoughts that are there. Wonderful, wonderful truths. All right, so um, I'm going to close in prayer. Give thanks for that by faith, not by sight, (laughs) that we haven't seen yet, but we'll do that. Thank you again. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. 
And while we see some of the beauties of the ceremonies that were performed by those Israelites so long ago, we also are reminded of their shortcomings. We know what they could do, but we so are reminded of what they couldn't do. And what a contrast with the perfection and the finality of the work of the Lord Jesus. And while God, you yourself designed this tabernacle so that you could be close to your people, they could be close to you, it had its limitations. And yet through the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been brought so close, so nigh, near and close to you, the distance removed, the barriers removed, sin completely dealt with. Never have to face it again because you've been propitiated by the, by the death of the Lord Jesus. So we give you thanks for this. We thank you for so much. We look forward to that day when the Lord Jesus comes to receive us unto himself. And then when one day he comes back in power and in glory. We give you thanks for, for all these things. We thank you for the provision even during this pandemic of being able to gather together and uh, meet physically like this. Because, Lord, you can't hug on Zoom. And so we're thankful for the provision of those things. But we know that you designed the church to be more than just a place to gather information. It's a place where we come together and to physically, in a sense, rub shoulders one with another. So we thank you for this ability to do this. Thank you for those here who made uh, the provision and had the thought to have these meetings. We ask your blessing now on the food as we partake of it. Give us a good day, and we give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.